From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus, Rabbi Jack Moline, in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. We put our story out there so people could see that like, there's another family out there that is going through what we're going through, or there's another family who's proud of who they are. Before Ryland could even speak, he managed to tell his parents that he is a boy. The political religious right focuses like a laser on its culture war agenda, Attacking LGBTQI plus persons and issues in religious terms may work in the culture wars, but the fact is that for many conservative Christians, these issues are not political, they are personal. Later in the hour, you'll meet Hillary Whittington, author of the book, Raising Ryland, Our Story of Parenting a Transgender Child with No Strings Attached. Than, than ever died in that gas chamber at Auschwitz, meaning the one that's shown the tourists. And it- and the, the, the Poles now admit, they put on the inscription outside, they admit that the building was built three years after World War II was over. It's a, it's a, it's a fake. Reva Price, the longtime aide to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, famously said, the first person to say Hitler in a political argument loses. While that may still be true, an unintended consequence has all too often been a turning away from any of the many steps leading up to the Holocaust, placing them exclusively in that one place and at that one time. Increasingly, however, even as Holocaust denial is inexorably spreading through certain political ideologies, it is essential to recognize the human vulnerabilities and biases that continue to feed anti-Semitism and other forms of dehumanizing hate. On this week's show, we'll get the thoughts of Megan Black, who leads the Common Good program at the Western States Center. She recently led a group trip to Poland, and had the opportunity to think deeply about these themes. They would not hear anything about religion. Uh, They didn't want to hear religion. And then if you put together a show that wanted to talk about uh, religion and politics, they just said no. Interfaith Alliance President Emeritus and Senior Scholar Reverend Welton Gaddy has been the host of State of Belief Radio since the very start in 2006. A lot of you have expressed concern at Welton's recent absence from the airwaves, and he'll join me on this week's show so we can catch up and get an update on what's going on. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and silos of separation. The United Methodist Church's slow-motion schism continues, with anti-gay congregations refusing to abide by denominational rules for disaffiliation. They want to go now, even though the latest institutional changes actually push the UMC rightward. Tactics being deployed include discussion of withholding funds from church governance structures and, in North Carolina at least, a threatened lawsuit. The founder and president of an outfit called Christian Lawmakers is an elected official, Arkansas State Senator Jason Rapert. He's free to do that, you say? Well, yes, he is. But what if I told you he's been blocking atheist voters from commenting on his official social media? After a four-year court battle, Rapert has reached a settlement with American atheists and agreed to unblock his censoring of constituents' voices, according to Religion News Service. And this Sunday night at 9, CNN will feature a special report hosted by journalist Dana Bash titled Rising Hate, Anti-Semitism in America. It leans heavily on new research from the ADL Center on Extremism. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. 
State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guests. We've offered stories on this show of heartbroken parents who've allowed their interpretation of Scripture to separate them from an LGBT child, and which they now say led to the death of such a child. Even as political forces in this country amp up the use of religion in a culture war that victimizes the most vulnerable, there are other stories, inspiring stories, of families that find a way to love each other, no matter the challenges or the challenging voices they face. Hillary and Jeff Whittington have been accidental public advocates for raising a transgender child in a faithful Christian context. The authors of Raising Ryland, Our Story of Parenting a Transgender Child with No Strings Attached, Hillary and Jeff have found time to be with us today, and I'm very happy to welcome them to State of Belief Radio. Jeff and Hillary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Can I ask you to start with just a brief introduction to your family and to Ryland in particular? Um, yeah, so we we live in Southern California, San Diego. We have two kids, Ryland, who is now 14, um, and our daughter, Brinley, who is cisgender, and she is 10. Ryland uh, was born, we thought he was our daughter, and... Um, we found out around the age of five that he was actually our son, and it has been a journey. Uh, Rylan is also deaf and has cochlear implants, so we've we've had a couple of challenges, but I can honestly say that we are happy, healthy, and doing great. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> For most of our listeners who tend to come from more progressive backgrounds, their religion is not one of making already difficult tasks of parenthood even more difficult. But many of them see conservative Christianity today as actively driving a wedge between parents of faith and a child who may fall outside the norm. How did you keep your faith but follow your hearts? For me, I I believe that God wants us to be good parents. He wants us to love our children unconditionally. And um, though it's a very long story of how we got to allowing Ryland to transition, as a mother, I was able to look deeper into his heart when he was younger and see that some of his masculine presentation was more than him just being a stubborn child. I mean, I could see that he was in pain being seen as a girl. And as a mother, I think it's my job to um, be intuitive and see see through things. And at the time, there were really no role models that had gone through this or a few. But, um, you know, after I had heard some stories of children trying to, frankly, kill themselves at young ages and hurt themselves because of the fact that they were not listened to, I I just knew that it was my duty as a mother to look deeper and help my child um, be happy and be who they were. If that answers the question. It, it, it's, it's, it's great. You, you made the powerful statement that you felt you had to choose whether you quote, want a living son or a dead daughter. Uh, 
I, it, it's so powerful. I, I almost hate to reduce the power by asking you to unpack it a little bit, but could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And I mean, people have coined this as, you know, a statement of, you know, to, to scare people or I don't know, there's a word that's used, but this is the, the, the truth. Um, we know families who were actually supportive and their children were in so much pain from the way that society treated them that they did take their own life. I've heard lots of horrible stories and we know people personally. Um, when I was going through this, I was um, in contact you know, it was very hard to find people who were in similar situations at the time that we were going through this. But I did meet a mom and uh, on, on the telephone. And at the time, her uh, transgender daughter was seven years old and wanted to wear um, a princess dress for Halloween. And when she told her child that she couldn't wear it, that the child ran out in front of oncoming traffic. And I was at seven years old. And at the time, Rylan was four or five this is before we knew or knew what to do, knew how to go forward. And it was in that moment, you know, I had heard the 41% at the time suicide rate and attempted attempted suicide rate. And I, I didn't really, um, not that I didn't believe it, but it hadn't really hit me until that moment. And you just realize that sure I could deny this and I could push back, but in doing that, I really was putting my child at risk of, being one of those children that wanted to kill themselves. And I was not willing to do that. Um, so as taboo as it sounds, or, you know, um, maybe it's a, it's a, an exaggerative statement. Someone wants to say, it's really not. People are really, kids are really dying and they're really taking their own lives. Even if they come from a home of mom and dad or mom or two moms, whatever that are supporting them. It's the way that society is treating them. That is destroying these poor kids. So, Jeff, I know that you were not raised with uh, an active Christian life, but you found your way into the Methodist Church with your family. Why aren't more churches hearing essentially the science of of how damaging it is to deny uh, a child's understanding of their own gender identity? I mean, why aren't they more understanding? I think it's I think it's just based on interpretation and the messaging that they're receiving within their faith communities. I mean, those communities are simply stating that it is not acceptable to be trans or identify as LGBT. And and I think that when that's the messaging that you've received, you've kind of closed yourself off to being open and loving and accepting of someone who does who does identify that way. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we've we've come across is just trying to to, you know, for me, faith is synonymous with love, you know, and love is, you know, how we decided to raise our child or raise our children and how we, you know, how we operate within our family. And, you know, I know that's a message that's often preached and it's often talked about, but I, unfortunately, I find that it is often uh, something that isn't practiced. Hmm. It was, it was heartening to see Fox News raise up your family's story this past summer but there was also enormous backlash. Why do you think there's such a fear of someone identifying as a Christian, but also challenging people of faith to do better by their kids? A, a challenge that clearly comes, as you said, Jeff, from love and from soul searching rather than from faith. Well, I, I just, it's hard to answer that question, but I, I did want to pose this. I, you know, 
being trans, in my opinion, is a, another human variation. It's just like having blonde hair, blue, you know, blonde hair, brown hair, blue eyes, brown eyes. But it's it's one of the human variations that is attacked and not celebrated. And um, I challenge people. I challenge people to think about it in a different way. You know, children are born every day intersex where they are born with ambiguous genitalia, um, you know, double chromosomes and, and different, different variances. And I just, I don't know. I just feel like this is the, this is one of the human variations that people fight against and they think that it's not natural and whoever your God is, whatever your faith is, you know, if whatever you believe that, that power is what created all of us differently and uniquely. And I think, I think that our family is a perfect example of, you know, a typical family. I really do. You know, we laugh because from the outside looking in, people think that we're crazy. We're weird. They think that there were all sorts of things, but if you take one day and just hang out in our home, you will see that we are one of the most typical families ever. We sit down every night for dinner together. We joke, we laugh, we play. Our kids have rules. They you know, have their chores. Um, we have, you know, we just have a very typical life. And I think that um, everybody fears what they don't understand. And I do think that this has been a gift for our family. Um, we always say in any interview that we do that we don't speak for the trans community. We are parents of a transgender transgender child and that's the only place that we can speak from but I can honestly tell you that Ryland has given us a gift because it has opened our eyes to people from all different walks of life all religions all backgrounds and um he's an amazing kid he's taught us a lot so you know I am I am not conservative in my politics I am not Christian in my faith but I am a product of a generation of parents who considered transgender identity to be a tragic disorder, something that needed to be treated psychologically and, and corrected, as it were. And I had to work hard as an adult to reorient my own thinking on this subject. What are the kinds of conversations that you've been having with parents who find themselves in a situation similar to you and Jeff? Mm-hmm. For me, I just, I try to reassure them that it it is very, it's a very difficult road at first for for many, not all. I think it's hard to wrap your head around um, this image that you've created of your child. And and we'll be the first to admit that we did the same thing with Rylan, that we had these images of what his future was going to look like. And that probably included him walking down the aisle in a white wedding dress and these things that I had created in my mind. And I think it was, it was hard at first to wrap our head around a different outward package. But once we were able to do that and see that Rylan was still the same awesome kid on the inside, it was just the outside that looked a little different. Once we were able to do that, I think we were able to get over the shock and the fear and the, you know, do you agree? Or Yeah. And I think that we, we kind of fall into this trap um, as parents and it's an understandable trap, but this trap of, of really have kind of forming in our own minds who we believe our kids should be and who they, who they should become and the way that we want them to be as adults and older humans. And so we kind of push them down these paths as they grow up in trying to create that and not really giving them the space to be themselves, to express who they are, 
to experiment, to feel out different things. And I'll admit that it's very scary and it's very hard. What we essentially had to do was move, remove ourselves from the driver's seat for a moment and put Ryland in there and say, show us where you're going. Like, show us the way, what are you feeling? What are you experiencing? We're listening. And it's a really challenging thing to do. And I think, you know, some people will take that out of context. They'll, they're they're going to say that, you know, that we're... Well, if your kid wants to of, be Superman, we're going to yeah. let him be Superman. Like, or yeah. we're the type yeah. of parents <laughs> that just let our kids, you know, run crazy through the streets and do whatever they want and form their own lives. No, we're, we're you know, we, we consider ourselves to be fairly strict parents and we have our rules and we have our expectations and we have the way that we expect the family to run and how... But we also have allowed our children within that to explore who they are, to express themselves to feel comfortable, not judged, and show us who they are. And it's an amazing experience when you do that. When you really give them that space, you see them start to shine through. I and mean, we always talk about with Ryland, once we started, once we, once we understood what was going on and we had changed pronouns and we affirmed him, the smile that was on that child's face and that beaming nature that came through him was something we had never seen or experienced. And it was phenomenal. And so that's how we've raised our second child as well. And I think that you know, I think it's something we all as, you know, as parents could strive to do a little better on. I, th- I think as, as parents, people wonder how you can have a conversation like that with someone who is four years old, five years old, even, even sometimes 10, 12, 14 years old. Is it, is it too intrusive to ask you to talk a little bit about what some of those conversations were like with Ryland? No, no, no. Yeah, when I, just before I say, you know, explain that, I, I, I want to say that children are very smart and they pick up on our feelings and what we want for them very, very, very young. And even though we never came out and said, you know, you can't wear that Superman outfit, Rylan could feel from us when he was, you know, when we still thought he was our daughter, he could feel from us the disdain and the, the discomfort that we had when he would present in masculine ways. And it's really hard to hide that. Um, And so I just, I mean, I will tell you that Rylan was afraid to talk to us about this because he knew deep down how we felt based on our responses to him when he did try and, you know, express himself in a masculine way when he was two or three, four years old. Well, and I think an important conversation to touch on would be the, the conversation that you had like there was one pivotal moment. There was kind of one tipping point and it was a conversation Hillary had with Ryland while I was off at the fire department. I worked 24 hour shifts, so I would be gone in the evenings, but I'll let you yeah. elaborate so, on that. Ryland, it's, it's, I'll try and make it quick, the cliff notes what? version. Um, but I was making Christmas cards um, to send out to our family. And I, on the return address labels, there were little characters and, you know, Jeff, I put reindeer ears on or whatever. And on Ryland's character, it, ha- it had long blonde hair because at the time Ryland had long blonde hair. And I put a cowboy hat on Ryland because at the time he loved cowboy hats. Go figure. And when Ryland saw the character return uh, labels, he looked at me and he said, mom, how could you do that to me? And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? And he says, how could you, how would you make me look like a girl? And I was at the time shocked, you know, we had been kind of dealing with some of this gender stuff and I've been trying to squash it. Um, but I said, Rylan, well, honey, it's because you are a girl. And he looked at me and he, you know, went into his room and he just started crying, 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 crying. And, um, then he said to me, mom, when the family dies, I'll cut my hair so I can be a boy. So he knew at the age of five years old that he didn't want to disappoint us. 
by being coming a boy while we were still alive. He was going to wait until we were gone so that he didn't have to disappoint us. And then the next morning, I thought we were like moving past that, moving on. And he woke up and he said, Mom, why did God make me this way? And it was in that moment that, you know, I'd been kind of fighting with Jeff. We hadn't been getting along because he didn't want to have this conversation. He was, you know, afraid like many people are. And I, at that point, I sort of made this decision in my head. I said, you know, if I have to leave my husband to support my child, then that's what I'll have to do because the pain that was coming from this small child was just unbearable. And how do you answer that? You know, yeah, how when you a child that? says, how, why did God make me this way? I mean, that's a statement of pain. That's a statement of discomfort. That's a statement of a lack of self-acceptance and understanding. And so the conversations from there are really centered around trying to help navigate through that. It was terrible. I, I am uh, I'm very grateful that you were willing to share that with our listeners. I'm, I'm sorry you went through it, but I am enormously admiring of the way that you you dealt with it and how honest you're being about it. I think you're going to help a lot of people by sharing that. As as you did with your YouTube video, which is now that's more than eight years old, how have how has Ryland been doing in the years since and how's your family been in uh, in adjusting to the changes that you talked about then? <laughs> Well, I will say Fox News was a little rough. That was a rough couple of weeks for us. I don't think we expected what that did to our family. Um, And the safety concerns that we felt from that interview was beyond anything that we had experienced before. But with that week removed, um, things are amazing. Yeah, things are great. Ryland and Brindley are doing wonderful. I shake my head just because Ryland is just, he's like, I mean... It's been a treat watching him grow up. I mean, he is absolutely thriving. I mean, he is, um, he's a great student. He's an extremely social kid. His social group is large. He's got, you know, some really great friends that he's able to be vulnerable with and who know his story and are very accepting and loving of his story. Um, You know, he plays, we figured out with the deaf component and the cochlear implants or anything, he decided he wanted to play water polo and he, you know, he plays probably too much water polo, but he's, you know, and it's just <laughs> trying to keep up with this kid's social calendar is probably Exhausting. one of the hardest things that we deal with at this time because he's just nonstop. And he's absolutely, if, if I mean, I, if, I had to, if I had to put it simply, he's crushing life. He really is in so mm-hmm. many ways. That's uh, that's wonderful to hear. And And your daughter? Same. Same. She's doing great. I mean, they've, they're, they both have leadership roles in their schools and um, the teachers adore them and they're kind, they're sweet. They stand up for, you know, other kids who have shortcomings or challenges. Um, they're just loving, loving humans. That's the most important thing is yeah. that they are very, um, empathetic. very genuine, very empathetic, very loving kids who aren't, who are who are quick to take people under their wings and and really you know so I don't know that's probably what makes us the most proud mm-hmm. so and the challenges that came about as as a result of your appearance on Fox have probably caused you to interact with people across a political and religious divide in this country uh, who you might not otherwise have have encountered. Do you have advice for those of us who would like to? Uh, ease the pain of those encounters? 
You know, I would love to say that they were in an, they were in interaction. Unfortunately, they weren't. Everything was very one-sided after that Fox News article. Everything was just basically attacks on us with the inability to engage and actually have some sort of civil conversation. Um, you know, I don't know. We've always talked about, we've said that, that you know, probably one of the hardest things we've to do, but we figured out to be the most effective is to lend an ear before we start with our story and before we start trying to change somebody else's mind. Meaning I feel like in a lot of our environment right now, it's, it's, you know, it's people standing on both sides of the screen streets screaming at the top of their lungs and nobody's getting anywhere. And it's having conversation where I'm willing to hear your side. I'm willing to hear what you have to say. I'm willing to, to listen and I'll probably and, understand because I was yeah, there at one point. And I might learn something. Yeah. But I most likely I'm probably going to disagree. But it's only until I do that, that or we do that, that we found we can get an ear from them. Because and we can share not, our story. And so, oh, sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I've been around you. But I think it's important to, to, to also note that we were on that other side of the street. When we were going down this journey, we didn't understand. We fought back. We thought this was insane. I mean, we we almost divorced over it. I mean, this is not something that was easy for us in the beginning. And and I Just think didn't we, we didn't understand. And I think that we always have to go back to that when we have people that don't get it and don't understand. But I also think that there are some people that don't want to hear our side of it. They've made up their mind and they don't want to hear what it was like for us because if they did, I can honestly relate to them and say, I understand where you're coming from. I thought the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. so. Well, I have to say, I'm I'm just so moved and impressed by your story of the transformative power of love, and particularly of parents being willing to do what's right for their children rather than what's right in the back of their own minds. So, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Thank, well, thank you. you, Hillary and Jeff Whittington are the authors of the powerful book. Raising Ryland, Our Story of Parenting a Transgender Child with No Strings Attached. The two of them have become powerful advocates for loving our children no matter what, and that goes for families for conservative religious backgrounds just as much as it does for anyone else. Thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief Radio today, and and all success for you and your family in the future. Thank you. you. We appreciate you um, having this conversation, and hopefully it'll help someone out there. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, Megan Black of the Common Good Program, Fighting Anti-Semitism. And later, an update from Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. One of the strategies that has best served the far right in this country is bringing together conservative Americans from different backgrounds around one passion-inspiring issue. While they would never use the word intersectionality, it's exactly what has been happening. And now, as a new strain of international coalition building on the far right surges, it is newly urgent to both observe that movement and recognize historical precedents for it. Precedents that, sadly, almost always include bigotry in general and anti-Semitism in particular. 
Megan Black is program director at Western States Center and her work leading the Center's Common Good program. With a focus on exactly those dangerous trends, Megan, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. You know, I think it's often difficult to recognize the international nature of what can feel like domestic political trends. You focus on combating anti-Semitism, and a recent trip to Europe was only partially an historical endeavor. Tell us about this trip, if you would. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, Folks don't often realize that the uh, battles we're fighting here in the United States to protect democracy and for justice and rights for all are being fought uh, all over the world and, in fact, are, are connected. And we've been working with a group of artists and musicians for several years now. One of our core beliefs is that we have to do really good policy work and we have to do really good electoral work, but we also have to do culture shift work. And so we work with artists and musicians for that reason. And we've invited them into, for the last couple of years, a deep wrestling with the problems of democracy, which is not something that many artists and musicians get to spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, so they they got to hang out with us and uh, learn some of the things that we uh, wrestle with every single day and talk with each other about it. And then we realized that, um, you know, it would be important for us to find time to take this um, story that we were wrestling with here in the United States and take it abroad and see how it relates to what's going on in other parts of the world. And so we planned a trip to Poland for June of this year, um, a place where many of them had never been. Most folks don't think to go to Poland for vacation, um, although it's a lovely country. Um, We planned it before the war in Ukraine started um, and then kind of monitored carefully to see if we could still go and decided we could. And so we went to this country that felt very different. And I think many of our participants would say in many ways felt very similar to what we're struggling with here in the United States. And we, we got to encounter some of those things kind of um, head on, which was fascinating and, and exciting and um, I think fruitful. Was, was that your first time in Poland? It was my second time in Poland. Part of, part of why I knew it would be important for us to go is because I'd been before actually with Western State Center Um, and had a a real sense of the impact that exploring these issues, especially the issue of anti-Semitism, can have when you you go to a place like Poland. Poland used to be one of the safest places in the world for Jews, and many folks uh, left other parts of Europe to go to Poland to find safety, many Jewish people. And then, you know, through the events of World War II in Nazi Germany, Um, And the Holocaust, Poland became what's called now the largest Jewish cemetery. And so it's an extraordinary and striking and deeply painful place to um, look at the issue of anti-Semitism, but it certainly leaves a a mark. So you knew a little bit about what you were going to encounter on this trip. Were you expecting to see what you saw and feel what you felt on this trip? I was, you know, I wasn't sure what that would, what it would look like. Uh, We went to Auschwitz, obviously, and um, took the group there. For most of them, it was their first time. For me, it was my second. And um, I remember that feeling the first time I went of being really overwhelmed by the shock of it, by the size and the scale and the horror of it. And this time, going back to a place like Auschwitz, already having a sense of um, what it was, I found that it was in many ways even more painful the second time because I didn't have the buffer of the shock 
to protect me from the deep pain and wow. grief and horror of that place. And so I found it even more challenging um, this time around and is not something I would <laughs> encourage people to do. And yet it was, uh, it was really meaningful. And I will say to you, it really put in perspective in, an, in another, as someone who has you know, dedicated my career to um, uh, protecting our democracy, expanding our democracy, um, being face-to-face with the horror of what, what can go terribly wrong, being face-to-face with, with um, what it looks like when this goes off the rails, when this goes terribly wrong, really reinforced the urgency for the work we're doing here in the United States and the relevance um, to, to around the world, to the rest of the world. And I think there are not a lot of people who understand what it means to be able to say the words, I walked out of Auschwitz. Yeah, it's true. Who, who was on this trip and what were some of the lessons that were learned? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want to share names, but you can talk about the kinds of people who were on the trip. Yeah. So we had a cohort of about 18 um, artists from all across the country, but mostly from the Pacific Northwest, a very racially diverse group, um, an ethnically diverse group. Some were Jewish, and for them, this was a a very meaningful visit. Some of them were actually Polish-descended Jews um, and in various stages of relationship to their Judaism. Others were Black or um, South Asian Um, and didn't have a sense of how this issue, how anti-Semitism related to them, which I connected with because I am a Black woman as well, and and I grew up Christian and um, am still Christian. And so for me, um, I remember coming into this and thinking, oh, well, this was a thing, but it's not a thing that I need to worry about anymore. And so our group came in with, um, and so they were so our group um, also reflected a variety of artistic expressions. Some were, as I said, musicians, some were visual artists, poets, playwrights, um, all sorts of different expressions. And they came in, frankly, with lots of different expectations of what this would be. I think some were looking for, oh, I've never been to Europe. I'll take a, a trip to Europe on Western State Center. And others you know, were anticipating a much more impactful um, personal experience. I think I can say pretty safely, having done some debrief now with those folks, with all of those folks, that everyone came back feeling personally impacted and um, and feeling deeply connected. And for the um, Jewish artists and the artists who, who came from Jewish ancestry, I think there was this sense of um, really deep, profound um, personal connection, perhaps even a finding of self, um, a sense of grief and a desire to find ways to express that grief and also perhaps that joy through their art. For our participants who came from a different background, um, I think they were surprised by how connected they felt to the Polish people, to the history of Poland, and how Um, relevant it felt to the United States. You know, one of the things that came up for um, our group, our very racially diverse group, um, who navigated many challenges, several of them had to navigate some pretty profound challenges getting to this very white, homogenous country, um, was when they realized that Poland was not of colonial power that Poland didn't have the colonial history, colonizing history that so many um, other countries in Europe have, and that it changed, it then changed their 
sense of relationship, I think, to the country and it and it was a little bit disorienting. So it was fascinating to see people navigate um, Poland's particular and very unique history in Europe as people of color. So we're we're only a few weeks uh, as we're having this conversation past this trip. So I'm I'm not sure you have a good answer to this question yet, but how can what they experience there, what you all experience there, be applied to the urgent work of combating hatred and bigotry? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And you're right, we're still sorting that out. But some of the initial things that are coming up, so a couple of our participants got back and they felt this immediate urgency to get into some local community organizing work, the sense of um, we have to strike now. This issue is so big. I need to do what I, it's so big and it's so local. And I think that's part of what they realized even in Poland, right? Like these things, the, what we do on the local level has a ripple effect and matters actually all across this country and all across the globe. And so some people got back and they dove right into um, advocacy work in their communities. Other people um, went, we have one artist, for example, who's on a, um, an artist residency, an artist retreat right now, and she's germinating her own kind of uh, body of work that is influenced by and inspired by this trip. Wow. Another is seeking to build out a partnership, actually, with some of the people we met in Poland and perhaps do an exchange. Um, so there, those are some of the immediate responses that people are having. But I think, you know, part of why we do these trips, why it's important for us to invest in taking people to places like Poland is because we think it creates a sense of deep understanding and a motivation to speak out, to stand up, um, and to spread the word about the big picture here. And so we're going to be paying attention over the next year or so to see how these artists and other people who go through these programs do that, how, how they speak up, how they stand up, and how they spread the word. You, know, you mentioned that um, uh, coming to a place where colonialism is not quite the issue that it is here in the United States um, was, was sort of a revelation for some of the people who were there. Why is it important for people of goodwill to recognize that that hate, anti-Semitic and otherwise, is not anchored in a particular kind of culture or history? Yeah, such a good question. You know, one of the things that we run into, even when we don't mean to, uh, is a kind of binary or a very simplistic explanation of what our problems are. Um, that there's a good guy and a bad guy, that there's black and white, that there's... Um, you know, Jew and Christian or, or what have you. And so we end up slipping into this very simplified idea of, of what the problem is. And then therefore we slip into really simple answers to how to fix it. And the value of um, trips like this and of that particular recognition was it really invited our participants into a sense of com complexity, into a wrestling with how, what's the big picture here? And part of what I find fascinating about anti-Semitism and why I think it's so important for us to talk more about it is that anti-Semitism also functions a little bit differently in our system of, of in systems of oppression in this country and in other countries. It doesn't play by the same rules that 
for example, racism does or misogyny or homophobia, things like that. And so it's important that people realize that there are a lot of different ways that these things play out and that they're complex and that they require particular kinds of attention. And what happened when people realized that Poland wasn't a colonial power, and if I can speak frankly, that these white people in Poland had a different history than perhaps the white people who um, they spend most of their time around in the United States, it forced them to expand their understanding of the issues and the forces that that they're really trying to make sense of and, and navigate. And it forced them to ask deep and hard questions, frankly, about um, about all, all the things. For me, that was the really fascinating piece of it was um, the extent to which we were able to really invite people into complexity and they loved it. People love being able to see that things are bigger and more connected um, than they, and then that they can find their way through that. That's a really affirming experience. Um, And so I think it was a really positive one overall. And you had your own journey to this before this trip. Can you talk about what in your background inspired you to focus on anti-Semitism? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I was raised in a pretty devout Catholic house in household in the, in the Midwest with some Pentecostal influence. My um, father's family was um, a church of God in Christ. And I would go to church with, I would go to church with them when we would visit. And so I grew up really deeply rooted in, in a Christian community and studied theology all the way through um, college and, and even graduate school. I have a master of divinity degree um, and thought I was going to work in the church for a while. And then I decided to instead get into interfaith organizing work. And it was in, um, in that work, in my interfaith work, that I met a bunch of rabbis. And um, over time, they introduced me to this issue of anti-Semitism and complexified it for me in ways that I didn't anticipate. And I found myself um, grateful because it helped me connect the dots on it. It helped me paint a bigger picture. Like I, I realized in being in deep relationship with these rabbis and also with some imams and with some Buddhist leaders um, and, uh, and leaders of all different faiths that um, there's such a big picture here. There's such a complicated and long history. And I was fascinated by it. And frankly, I will say, um, I was also called to account a little bit. I had to then go back and look at my own tradition and realize, oh, there are ways in which um, I, as a Catholic, uh, have been perpetuating um, anti-Semitism or at least um, an anti-Jewish bias. And it, it really helped me bring kind of a fine-tooth comb through my own beliefs and faith tradition. And part of my work now is finding ways to hold Christian communities accountable to the ways in which we are complicit in perpetuating anti-Jewish bias. And so for me, it's been really a journey of self-discovery and of finding ways to be in in deeper and broader community with with people. It's fascinating. And I want to come at this from the other side now for for just a second. Uh, I offered Reva Price's tongue-in-cheek assessment of introducing Hitler into a political disagreement when I introduced you. But very seriously, when is invoking anti-Semitism counterproductive to combating prejudice? Oh, good question. 
there are people invoking anti-Semitism all over the place these days. And what I look for when I hear that is who is being protected or served by that invocation. So is the person who's inv- invoking anti-Semitism or the organization, are they doing it in a defensive measure to protect their own interests, especially if they're not a Jewish organization? Are they protecting their own interest or their own people? Or are they truly doing it in a way that is intended to protect the um, history and autonomy and freedom uh, of Jewish communities in this country and in others? So for me, that is the first place I look, I look to, because what we see now with the invocation of anti-Semitism across the political spectrum is a lot of self-serving uses um, that actually distract from the real threats that we see coming from white nationalist actors and white nationalist movements, um, both here and in the United States. And so being really clear about the actual real lived threat to Jews in this country today um, and historically is, is really, really important. And, and that's where I would keep the focus. That was a great answer. For so long, a dedication to democracy was the hallmark of true American exceptionalism in its best form. Today, it's clear that some who feel their lifelong privilege is under threat would rather sacrifice democracy than their own supremacy. Why is a strong and vibrant democracy the only hope we have going forward? I love this because, you know, I actually think there's some real wrestling right now with this, especially on the left. People are really wrestling with, you know, um, democracy has historically it has it's it's a both and it's been a really, really good thing, but it's also been. Um, a really challenging thing, especially for communities of color in this country. And um, for me, where I have landed on this is that I've come to appreciate the extent to which because of our diversity, because of how different we all are, it's kind of like that saying, um, the journey is the destination, right? Like what a democracy offers is the chance for all of us to come to the table and negotiate with each other for our best interests. And absent that, we are in an authoritarian space, right? There is simply the imposition of one person's will over another. What we can look forward to in a robust and thriving and inclusive democracy is a space where everyone has the tools and the ability to negotiate for their own needs in relationship with each other across the table. Everyone gets a seat at the table. Now, whether or not they're going to get all of their, you know, desires and hopes and, and interests met is a whole other thing because we have to, we have to work that out. But absent that, what we have is is authoritarianism, and um, that means that there's always someone at the bottom. And we know that historically, that means that there are always going to be black people at the bottom. And for me, that's a that's a non-starter. Another great answer. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little more generally. Tell us about the Western State Center's efforts to foster democracy and civic engagement and how our listeners can follow and support that work. Great. Yeah, Western State Center is a, an organization based in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon. Um, we serve uh, the entire country, but with a specific emphasis on Oregon, Idaho, and Washington. Um, and we have been around for decades as a center for community organizing and justice work. We have a history of doing really strong work around reproductive justice, racial justice, 
And now we're really focused on the threat of white nationalism. And so we operate through four primary pillars. Um, we focus on culture change. As I said, we work with artists and musicians uh, to equip them with the tools that they need to include an analysis and understanding of the threat to democracy and their work and their advocacy. We develop leaders to do the same uh, we equip movements um, in our area and across the country to be effective advocates and defenders of democracy. And we ourselves are dedicated to um, the defense of, of inclusive democracy. And we have two primary programs. The Momentum Program tracks and monitors white nationalist movements and activities and equips local governments and um, school boards and um, leaders, community leaders with everything that they, that they need to resist the um, imposition of white nationalist activity in their communities. Um, and then the common good program, as I said, as I, as I, the common good program that I lead really focuses on um, equipping people with an understanding of how anti-Semitism is particularly weaponized by white nationalist movements and anti-democratic movements and giving them the skills to navigate that, um, that weaponization. So that's where we're primarily focused. Um, we can be found in all the places everyone can be found, Facebook, Instagram, our website, www.westernstatecenter.org. You can follow us there. You can sign up for our newsletter. We send it out regularly with all kinds of updates. Megan Black is Common Good Program Director at the Western State Center. With deep experience at the intersection of white supremacy, anti-Semitism, and Christian hegemony, Megan recently traveled to Poland to engage with the horrors of the Holocaust in a present-day context. You can learn more about her work at westernstatecenter.org. Megan, thank you very much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. It was a joy. After 16 years hosting this program, the Reverend Welton Gaddy has been away for the last couple of months, and we haven't said much about it. So it's time to have him back on the show and get an update. Welton, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, man. I'm glad to see you. You know, folks have been asking where you've been since I started hosting the show, and I'm, I'm not taking that personally. So let me ask you that question on their behalf. Where have you been? Um, for over a year now, my wife has been having a, a lot of trouble, two major surgeries, and uh, that has taken on some other things uh, for her to have to deal with. And you know, Jack, I uh, all of these years, uh, she has been so good to be uh, helping me and also to take time that I take away from her. And um, I simply could not watch her go into that situation and not set aside everything else finally to uh, take care of her. Um, I don't regret doing that. I can tell you that um, it's the hardest work I've ever done. Yeah. Uh, it wears you out. But it also puts you in a situation in which you are trying to help a woman who you love and you can't do anything about her pain and you just can help her. So that's that's hard. It, it does bother me. It has bothered me. 
that I could not be on the show, but two things happened. I, I felt like I had to give most of my time to her, if not all the time to her. And a guy that uh, I'm talking with right now, along with some others, said to me, be very careful about yourself. You've got to get some people helping you because you can't do this all alone. Well, I tried. <laughs> and, uh, and you were right. Uh, I still am most of the time doing it myself. And then that causes me, because I, I care so much about uh, what we do on this show, and I care about trying to stay in touch with people who are very important to me and very important to the show. I had one situation, I don't think I've even said this, uh, but there was someone from New York Times that asked me to come and help with something. And I said, I can try, but I'm not sure I can do it. It ended up I couldn't do it. And that just that really tears me up. So I have done it because I wanted to. I am still doing it because I want to. Uh, but there are all kinds of uh, thoughts and feelings uh, about doing that. I, I'm, I'm sorry for what Judy is going through, and uh, I admire you for giving her the, the time and the care and the attention that she so richly deserves. Has something kept you going these months other than your love for your wife? Yeah, I, I think uh, your calls, uh, knowing what Ray's doing, that in itself has, has been good. And then I have some really good friends here uh, that pump me up sometimes if they see me needing that. And uh, <laughs> this is the opposite of what you asked me. The things that hurt the most is not having time to do the things uh, that really make you go and feel. Yeah, yeah I hear that. Uh, and so those two uh, are, are, are clashing with each other. Yeah, well, the, the program I know has meant so much to you. Uh, can you say a few things that were important to you about hosting State of Belief for these past 16 years? You know, people don't understand this. You, you do, and a lot of people have forgotten it. But when we were trying to, uh, to get on the air, they didn't want to hear religion. And then if you put together a show that wanted to talk about uh, religion and politics and other areas like that, they just said no. And um, we had a, a person on our board uh, who had been in uh, that the place that he could help people get on the place we wanted to be. And actually, they asked us to come on. And I said to them, because also the, uh, uh, the other people that were on were horrible. <laughs> they, 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 they did not know politics or religion. And um, so when we, uh, we signed on, I said, I can only do this if you let me be who I am and what we talk about and what we're not going to talk about. And we are going 
to deal with people that we don't agree with because we need to hear what they're saying. We want to say what we're saying. And we, we heard some really interesting things. We did an interview with a guy who is, was a Christian and over the hill, a Christian. Um, and uh, I said, do you, do you believe that being a Christian makes someone a better walker or a better person to play ball? And, oh, yeah the best players in the world are Christians and that's who they, how they get. So that was hard to not go on. (laughs) But, uh, but I I have to say, it's the first time I ever heard people claim that Jesus was their personal trainer. (laughs) Well, but but what I'm saying to you is it's, it's been great all the way. Yeah. You, you started on air America radio. Yes, and uh, and eventually, uh, when Air America no longer broadcast, we we became independent of that. Sure. Uh, another young broadcaster started about them, and uh, the two of you became good friends. Uh, I'm pleased that even though it was only by a few months, you outlasted Rachel Maddow uh, as a <laughs> regular presence on the air. So that's uh, that's a real claim to fame, Welton. She got to be a friend, and and uh, my gosh, she's done so much and is still doing it uh but yep. she she has always been very helpful to us and trying to if she has time to get on with us she has been a good friend of the show and she has been a grateful friend of welton gaddy i can tell you that what do you remember thinking back in 2006 when the internal conversations were happening at interfaith alliance about whether to start that air america radio show that we now call state of belief. I felt great about it and felt like we could make something of it. We were in the middle of uh, needing money all the time. And uh, people wondered why we would spend money on this kind of show rather than uh, put it on something else. I really believed that it was a way into other things for us that would be good, not just uh, on the show. And um, that's why I wanted to do it. And and I have to say, I was surprised at how quickly we picked up people who were interested in the, some of the most interested people about religion were people who didn't like religion. Mm-hmm. I remember getting a, a letter one time from a guy who said we listened to uh, to state of belief uh, every Sunday night uh, while we're swimming, and we've never gone to church, but we don't miss this. And uh, I thought, you know, somebody is uh, learning something, and somebody is showing what we can do with other people. And here we are again with uh, religion being a an athletic training regimen for a segment of our population. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> well, the technology has changed. You know, we we used to be entirely reliant on broadcast uh, radio for our listening audience, and now we have far more podcast subscribers than we do people who who listen over the air. Yeah. 
But what about the religious and political landscape has changed during these 16 years from your perspective? You know, I, I, I thought about that the other day. Um, we really did in the first um, oh, three or four years, at least, maybe even the five or six years, we really did have on people who were just as far from us as we could possibly be. But when mm-hmm. we went on, we said to them that this is not an argument. This is a trying to understand each other and see if we can make any progress of where we might could come together. We can't do that now. Some of those people that we talked with at that time, we did it with almost friendship and at least saying We respect you. We want you to respect us. The last um, four or five years, it has become very, very difficult to have the kind of conversation that we had at that time. And God knows that we need it now more than we ever needed. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. All right. So the interview is winding down. The summer is winding down. And uh, the relief from the election season is disappeared because we're right back in the middle of it. So as we look at the midterms coming up this fall, are there one or two things you'd like every one of our listeners to be focusing on as they consider what their role is in the uh, November elections? It's not a name. Um, It's about how they go uh, to the polls. And whether or not, I mean, yes, we want everybody to go to the polls, but I want everybody to go to the polls having looked at what's at stake. And um, I think that uh, the more we can put up on our show and in everybody else's show, that they need to say what they're about, why they are about it, And what are they trying to get from it? And that should help people know how they ought to vote. Yeah, uh, you've carried that message for 16 years, Welton, Uh, (laughs) sometimes a little more stridently, sometimes a little more gently. But but that's what Interfaith Alliance is all about. And that's what State of Belief Radio has been been broadcasting. So um, this is not the only conversation uh, you'll have on state of belief. There's a lot more to explore with you, whether it's with me or whoever else might be sitting in this chair ahead. But I'm very glad you were here. The Reverend C. Welton Gaddy is President Emeritus and Senior Scholar of Interfaith Alliance and the longtime host of this program, State of Belief Radio. Continue healing for you and yours, Welton. Uh, I cherish you as a friend, and I look forward to the next time we talk. Same for you, man. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be a part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company, 
I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.